0: and welcome to the political history of the United States. Episode 2.21, A Gathering Storm in New England. If the first season of this podcast could be described as the story of the first colonies being founded and their struggle for stability, this season should be defined as one about a struggle of those colonies to find their place in the greater empire. While nominally on their surface, Bacon's Rebellion and King Philip's War were both events dealing with Indian relations, and in the case of Bacon's Rebellion, some unfair tax policies, the underlying tensions have long been the question of how the colonies fit into the greater empire as a whole. In Virginia, in the aftermath of Bacon's Rebellion, a long occupation took place. An occupation that was universally hated by the colonists. The long-term effect of that is that the large planters became seen as the benevolent protectors of the individual farmers who had once rebelled against them. William Berkeley was straddled with the blame for the conflict as former enemies united out of the common bond of hating the new occupying English army. In New England, however, things are going to play out different. On the one hand, it was a war that was nothing more than a bungled mess, but ultimately it was a successful one. For those in power within the colony, the blame was shifted from being ineffective leadership to a loss of spirituality. The war was not caused by poor colonial policies towards the Native Americans. The large number of deaths and the destruction throughout New England was not caused by the baffling decisions by the colonial military leaders. Everything was the result of a population falling into the trap of sin and moving away from the orthodoxy that Massachusetts and the surrounding colonies were built upon. Well, internally, the New England colonists felt that the entire episode had been retribution from an angry god, back in England, the king was seeing nothing short of a catastrophe going on in New England. His subjects had just fought a major war without any kind of intervention from England or its troops. When Edmund Andros had tried to bring aid to this situation, he was chased away by the New England colonists, who were just as ready to attack him. While Andrus was coming over with pretty transparent ulterior motives, it does not completely diminish the fact that the New England troops were ready to attack a royal governor and royal forces if need be. It isn't as though this rejection of help from the crown was a first mark against New England either. The crown had long been concerned of an independent streak in New England, one that despite their best efforts, they had struggled to put down. However, now, following the conclusion of King Philip's War, the Crown had to grapple with the fact that the colonies were operating with an uncomfortable streak of independence and had just militarized and fought a totally independent war from the Crown. That during this event, the colonies formed internal alliances with each other and fought for the common benefit of the entire region was something that was very, very concerning back for the King in London. This kind of independence out of New England had been a concern for the Crown for years. However, with the end of King Philip's War, concern turned into an outright fear. England was suddenly in a position where they needed to assert power over their New England colonies and ensure that royal prerogative was the name of the game. Now, just in case you are looking at this and you decide that the issues in New England by themselves are complicated enough, for the English crown, it itself is about to go through a transformative period. Following the death of Charles II and the rise of his brother James, our old friend the Duke of York, to the throne, England would be rocked by religious scandals. These scandals are going to be so all-encompassing that eventually it is going to bring in the reign of William and Mary over England. The 1680s in New England are going to mark a time where we see all the original colonial charters declared void and the much-hated dominion of New England formed as a method whereby the crown could better administer and assert control over the wayward colonies. As New England struggles internally, England itself would suffer through what will become known as the Glorious Revolution. It is during this decade that the most pivotal questions of the colonial United States will really come into formation in Massachusetts. What is the place of these colonists in the English sphere? This is the question that had been simmering from the very beginning of our story in New England. It is the question that Virginia had also been forced to consider in the wake of Bacon's rebellion. However, in New England, where independence had always been a central feature, they were now forced to ask this question as the crown took ever-increasing control over them. Before we can jump in and get the upcoming Dominion of New England off the ground, I want to spend our episode today moving through the conditions that made the Dominion possible. Problems from an overtly independent New England, specifically Massachusetts, was nothing new to the crown. In fact, between 1660 and the outbreak of the war, the colony had twice been sent royal commissioners to see what was going on up in the Bay Colony. During the first such instance, after the shocking persecution of the Quakers in Massachusetts, this is the event that saw Mary Dyer hung, the king sent over a royal commission to see what was going on. In this case, the colonists went along with things up until a few minutes after the royal commissioners left. After that point, the colonies simply went back to doing what they had done before. The second and more serious commission came in 1673, when Captain Winborn came over. We had talked about his time in New England back in episode 2.13. Winborn, if you'll recall, had written an absolutely scathing report about the conditions of the colonies. During his stay in New England, not only did Winborn see a general contempt and ignoring of the king's laws, speaking specifically in regard to the Navigation Acts, but was also nearly killed when he attempted to impress colonists to go fight a conflict in New York. Unsurprisingly, the crown reacted with horror to these allegations. In response, the decision was made that a representative of the king would be sent to North America to figure out what was going on in the apparently wayward colony. As we talked about a few moments ago, King Philip's war brought an entire new set of concerns to the crown regarding New England. If the initial report made by Winborn had been concerning, to say the least, when combined with the New England colonists now fighting a war seemingly independent of the crown, there was palpable fear. England needed to do something to get both New England and especially Massachusetts to fall in line with royal rule. From the Crown's perspective, New England presented something of an anomaly in their colonial system. Is it fair to claim that only New England was ignoring the Navigation Acts? Probably not. However, the other colonies certainly were not doing it to the same extent as the New Englanders. The problem is going to become even more acute in 1675. During that year, London passed new rules and regulations to streamline how shipping worked and the issuance of passports for merchants. This was meant to hopefully cut down on the lost revenue and to eliminate the risk of other countries illegally seizing English goods for minor violations. Unsurprisingly, the New England colonies seem to have received the memo and just decided to ignore it. This situation was really driven home, however, after the English caught the Speedwell from Plymouth illegally trading tobacco. And just a quick note, this absolutely is not the same Speedwell from earlier in the show. Charles II was furious at this discovery, and it did nothing but reinforce the continuing flaunting of royal decrees and the dangerous amount of independence that flourished in New England. Charles II decided, therefore, that it was time for the New Englanders to answer for their continued defiance. On March 10, 1676, Charles II ordered Edward Randolph to travel to the colonies with a message. The message demanded that the colonies send agents back to London. Agents who were expected to answer for the colony's continued disobedience. Knowing that such a request was likely to just get lost to the mail, Charles II ordered that it be read aloud in the presence of Randolph and that Randolph shall report back on the efforts being undertaken to send agents back. Randolph wasn't just being sent to New England in order to make sure that the letter was read. He was being sent over to be the king's eyes. He was informed that while he was there, he was to learn as much as he could about the colony. Where was the power coming from? Who were the biggest players in the colony? He was to collect information regarding the colleges, the businesses. He was told to bring back the law codes and figure out the justice system and just how it functioned. The king and the Privy Council wanted to know the social classes in the colony as well as the important churches. In other words, they wanted to know every single detail on how Massachusetts was functioning. In addition to all of this, there were instructions to attempt to ascertain the military strength of the colony and what their capabilities were. For Randolph, this was going to be a convenient thing as the colony was still fighting King Philip's war. From these instructions, it is clear that England wanted to regain control over the colony and was desperate to learn about what the institutions were and what they were going to have to deal with. While it isn't completely clear if the English were actually planning intervention at this point, they wanted to be prepared should they need to go that route. Indeed, it seems more likely that they were not planning to immediately jump in and attempt to forcibly bring the colony back into compliance with English law. After all, Randolph is being sent over to bring back representatives to answer for the colony. Had the crown simply wanted to jump in and reinforce royal prerogative, there were easier ways to do it. More likely, the hope was that by forcing Massachusetts to send agents, it would be enough of a wake-up call that the king and his counselors meant business, that it would bring the colonies back into line. Upon arriving in Massachusetts, Randolph was treated fantastically. All his requests were immediately given, and three capable commissioners were quickly on their way back to London. Yeah, just kidding about that. What actually happened is that when Randolph arrived, he quickly viewed the blatant violations of the Navigation Acts with his own eyes. In his first report back, he commented that the governor of Massachusetts, John Leverett, responded to these blatant violations by saying that while they recognized the king and the parliament could pass laws, those same laws were doing nothing to help New England, and therefore they were not obligated to follow them. The fact that the Massachusetts governor, at least according to Randolph, was so willing to just blow off royal authority is a pretty telling fact, and frankly not all that inconsistent with what we have already seen. Massachusetts had little interest in towing the company line, and other than when the commissioners were in town, they really did not seem to hide it. In the case of Randolph, by this point the colony had observed that little negative attention came to them despite the repeated admonishments from the Crown to fall into line. As Randolph worked on learning about the colony, Massachusetts went to work looking around for who they should send back to London. They, predictably, put about as much effort into looking for commissioners as you would expect. As Randolph worked on his tasks, few things were easier than beginning to dissect the military matters. Though we are now on the back half of the conflict, King Philip's war was still ongoing in the colony. If there was any one thing that was going to bring the king comfort about Massachusetts, it was probably military matters. Sure, by June of 1676, the English were basically cruising to victory, the hardships of the previous year now largely behind them. However, recall from our episodes on the war that the colonists won the war largely in spite of their best efforts. The colonists were always going to win King Philip's war. It was really never something that was much in question. They had superior weapons and a large enough population that they were not badly outnumbered as in those early years. Despite these seeming advantages, however, 1675 was a pretty terrible year for the colonists in the field. They suffered loss after loss, and almost more importantly, they failed to seize on advantages when presented. Colonial military theory involved bringing the Indians out into a large-scale traditional pitched battle. The Native Americans, however, instantly recognizing that doing this would be suicide, relied on those quick hit-and-run tactics while avoiding making meaningful contact with the English we see only a couple examples where the colonists were able to have traditional battles that they so desperately wanted. And even in those cases, we don't really see any kind of an overwhelming victory during the 1675 campaigns. The Great Swamp Fight ended up being the biggest win of note for the colonists all year, and even that wasn't exactly a great-looking win for the colonists. For Randolph, what he saw must have indeed been a positive sign. First, the armies were not as large as what was projected back in England. Combined with their completely ineffective campaigns against the Indians so far, suddenly New England seemed a bit less formidable. Digging a little bit deeper, Randolph was quick to discover that not everybody in New England was on the same page. Externally, we had discussed the fact that the New England colonies had little love for each other. But more specifically, None of them had any particular love for Massachusetts. The Massachusetts Bay Colony had evolved into being the epicenter of the New England universe, much to the consternation of the other colonies. There was an ever-present fear throughout New England of the dominance of the Massachusetts Bay Colony. The other member colonies of the New England Confederation, as well as Rhode Island, were deeply uncomfortable with the power that Massachusetts wielded over the region. It wasn't as though they were disagreeing with the practical governance in the Bay Colony, with the exception again being Rhode Island. However, their objections came purely out of self-interest. None of the New England colonies wanted to be subservient to any of the other colonies, something that remained a serious risk with Massachusetts so completely dominating the area. Internally within Massachusetts, however, there was far from being consensus amongst the people. Last season, when talking about the founding of Massachusetts, we had discussed how the colonial government took a top-down approach. As a quick refresher, the government had a limited electorate, made up entirely of church members, who then elected a governor, who held virtually absolute power. While that had loosened up a bit, Massachusetts was still very much a colony of insiders. The Bay Colony is one where power flowed through the church, and obtaining power without the church remained a very difficult feat. Church membership itself remained a very difficult thing to ascertain, considering that those who were admitted into the church are those same people who would hold the majority of the power in the colony. This means two things. First, it means that the power in the colony is relatively protected from outside influence. Those who are already in power are getting the right to choose those who are going to be coming into that power circle, hence creating a self-serving loop. However, it also means that there is going to be a growing power base that exists outside the established pathways. This group had grown exceedingly tired of what they viewed as the arbitrary control by what had become the ruling class of the party. This group was one that would have been far more willing, at least in Randolph's mind, to submit to royal authority. Randolph viewed this group of disgruntled colonists, those who fell outside the strict Puritan establishment, as being potential allies should the king attempt to intercede in order to restore royal prerogative. For John Leverett, he obviously took notice of the kinds of questions that Randolph was asking. Leverett openly accused Randolph of attempting to start a mutiny and creating discord in the Massachusetts government. Though in between the accusations, Leverett did ask Randolph to do him a solid and issue a favorable report, which, yeah, probably was not going to happen. Upon returning to England, Randolph was called to appear back before the Privy Council. Delivered on October 12, 1676, the report by Randolph was nothing short of a scathing indictment of just how far the Massachusetts colony had come. It was a report that fell nicely in line with the report from years earlier, delivered by Captain Winborn. Randolph, in his report, described a colony that had become dangerously independent of England. Randolph wrote that the colony had begun coining their own money marked with 1652 on it, an obvious nod to the Protectorate of Oliver Cromwell. Randolph further argued that by putting 1652 on the money, the argument was that the Massachusetts colony had become a free and independent people on that date. For the members of the Privy Council, this both confirmed their expectations as well as their worst fears. Massachusetts had always been a dangerously independent colony. However, by this time, and in consideration of the ongoing conflict between the colonists and the Indians, it was time to reestablish control in the region. However, as we already know, by the fall of 1676, England had another set of problems going on in the colonies. Specifically, down in the Chesapeake, Nathaniel Bacon was busy rebelling against William Berkeley, while the Crown was obviously concerned with the situation in New England. The fear there was more of a theoretical rebellion than the ongoing actual rebellion in Virginia. Though the Crown was not terribly concerned about Virginia actually trying to become independent, despite the internal murmurings inside of the colony they were dealing with a royal governor who had been overthrown by angry colonists. What this means practically is that the Crown needed to divert their attention from the problem in New England down to the suddenly rebellious Chesapeake. However, despite the need of the Crown to shift their gaze on Virginia and away from Massachusetts, the decision of the Privy Council is that such a move would be merely temporary, and that, in fact, it presented an opportunity for the English to reassert control in New England as well. If you'll recall, during the fall of 1676, the English sent troops under the command of John Barry to get control over the growing revolt in Virginia. The Privy Council decided that this was the logical choice, since John Barry and his men were already going to be in the neighborhood, relatively speaking of course, that after they wrapped up affairs in Bacon's Rebellion, they should head north to Massachusetts to make sure that the New Englanders understood who was really in control. Well, the plan was for Barry to sail to the colony with troops in tow, it's important to recognize that Barry was not planning to go in and really overthrow anything. The king, as well as the members of the Privy Council, fully understood that the governance of the colonies was going to have to be something left up to the locals. As had long been the case and would be going forward, London depended on the local populations for self-governance. Shipping an entire bureaucratic structure across the ocean to rule in the colonies was something that simply was never going to happen, nor would it have ever really been practical. Pragmatically speaking, the North American colonies are a long way from the home islands. And there is an ocean in between them. Communication is limited and, as we have seen, enforcing English laws in the colonies is a difficult task in the best situations. Sending a full governing structure, as we just mentioned, is going to be something that is not economically viable. Therefore, leadership was always going to be in the hands of the locals. Despite difficulties with enforcing English law... The fact remains that ultimately the English government still needed a method to control their colonies. Otherwise, England ran the risk of the colonies potentially deciding that they don't need their English overlords and moving towards independence. The answer that the English came up with was the realization that they did not need to worry about controlling the population at large, something that was going to be an impossible task. All the English needed to worry about was controlling those men who were at the upper rungs of the colonial leadership. If you can control the leadership, the trickle-down effect should bring the vast majority of the population into line with royal prerogative. Sure, there are going to be a few outside rabble-rousers. However, they can be dealt with internally on an individual basis. What is the best way to control colonial leadership? Economics, as it remains today, is a powerful weapon in this quest. If falling into line with the English meant that there was more money flowing into the colony at large, and more specifically into the pockets of that colonial leadership, it would provide a way to tie the colony more closely to their mother country. If independence meant a worsening economic state for the colonists, then the thought was that they would be happy to fall back in line with their monarch in order to avoid economic failure. John Barry's job, therefore, was not to sail to Massachusetts and overthrow the entire colonial structure. Rather, his job was to appeal to the leadership and help them see that working with the government was not such a bad thing after all, and indeed doing such a thing would make the powerful men in the colony that much more powerful. Of course, Barry would be there with his soldiers. However, they were more of just a reminder of the stakes of the game, then they were meant to be an actual threat of imminent force. The specific plan that was put in place would have created a commission with the New England colonies. The commission would have included a representative of the king, the colonial governors, militia leaders, leaders in the merchant class, and major landowners that were friendly to the crown. The first goal for the members was to take a loyalty oath to Charles II and denounce Nathaniel Bacon, as you need to make sure that those on this council are not getting any ideas from the commotion going on down in Virginia. The second step was to stop trade between New England and the Baconian rebels. The group would then be positioned to personally carry out royal prerogative in New England. The carrot on the stick for the colonists would come in the form of favorable trade deals from London. The ultimate hope was that the favorable trade deals would help move the nexus of power in New England from the colonial leadership and to the corporate interests back in London. By shifting that nexus of power from the colonial elite and towards the lending corporations, power would effectively shift back across the Atlantic, where the king would be able to have more control over it directly. So, how did Barry's journey to New England go? It, in fact, never ended up taking place. We discussed back during our episodes on Bacon's Rebellion, that the forces under John Barry ran into a very difficult time down in Virginia. Disease absolutely decimated the men under Barry, not to mention delays caused by William Berkeley, whom, if you also recall, was no friend of Barry's. By the time that Barry and his men were ready to limp home, they lacked sufficient strength to head to New England and carry out the plan. Instead of heading to New England, Barry and his men were forced to head back to England proper. New England had received a temporary reprieve from the threat of royal control. However, as we are going to see in episodes to come, this is going to be far from a lasting situation in New England. The Crown hadn't forgotten about their wayward New England colonies, and eight years in the future they are going to finally intercede in the New England colonies. Back in New England, the region is going to spend the better part of the next decade sorting through the devastation that was King Philip's War. The colony had lost a tremendous amount of money in the conflict. The New England economy was in tatters as towns were burned to the ground during that war. Territorial expansion of the region was largely stymied by large Indian populations to the east and the New York holdings to the south. Finally, remember that the war itself is going to continue until 1678. So even as southern parts of New England begin picking up the pieces, the northern portion of the region, especially up in modern-day Maine, are going to continue to see fighting for years to come. Likewise, it is always important to remember that the events in North America are not taking place in some kind of a vacuum. Back in England, there was much more on the plate of the crown than simply a small group of colonists that were pushing their luck. As dramatic as it may seem from listening to this podcast, it isn't as though New England is actively rebelling against the crown. Sure, they have become far more independent than anybody back in England is comfortable with, but it isn't as though this has gone beyond the stage of lost profits for the English. During the 1670s, Bacon's Rebellion was a far more outright threat to English authority. Bacon's Rebellion, at a minimum, represented an actual rebellion against the royal government of that colony. The issue in New England, therefore, were easy to move to the back burner because they were indeed less of a risk than what was going on down in Virginia. Likewise, again, even though the king probably was not thrilled about an independent army in New England rejecting help from Edmund Andros or asking London for help, all reports were that the New England militias were pretty inept in action. Should an actual rebellion break out, it should have been something easy enough to put down. This is all on top of the fact that colonial matters were still only a small fraction of other events going on in England at the same time. Among these events was a new set of religious scandals that would again begin rocking England throughout the 1680s. These scandals are going to set in motion the events which will eventually lead to the Glorious Revolution. Next time, we are going to look at the conditions in England as they deteriorate in the early 1680s. While England is staring down the very real possibility of another civil war, those will be made within the colonies that will lead to the foundation of the Dominion of New England. Until then, I hope you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here in two weeks' time as we head back across the Atlantic to check in on events in London.